Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We're continuing our series today, The Price of Victory. So turning your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 1 to 10, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message entitled, Boasting with a Thorn. It's a number of years ago now when I noticed a woman driving somewhat erratically in my neighborhood. I was behind her in my car, and then she pulled over. And as I was about to pass, I noticed, seeming to be in distress, she was hunched over her steering wheel. I thought something must be wrong, and I stopped right beside her. I opened my window. She opened hers. Are you all right? I asked her. You know, I live in a subdivision very close to a large bridge, passes over the Fraser River, the major river in my neck of the woods. And the reason I mention that is because the woman just opened up to me and she told me what was happening to her. She said, I have a phobia. I'm afraid I'm going to make the wrong turn and then I'm going to be on the road I can't get off of. That's a road that goes over the bridge high above the river. And I'm terrified of that. I said, don't let that worry you. Just tell me where you want to go. You know, I'm on my day off. You can follow my car. I'll get you on the right road and I'll make you a promise. You won't go over the bridge. She looked at me and she said, thanks for understanding. I must look like a crazy woman to you. And I said, not at all. And so off we went. And once she was on the right road, I simply waved her on. You know, as I thought about what she said, I must look like a crazy woman to you. I thought about my own irrational fears. You know, I have a fear of heights. You know, when I'm hiking or on foot, And I've often stood at the edge of a sidewalk, and I've noticed that even with my shoes halfway over the edge of the sidewalk, I never slip and fall off onto the street, you know, a couple of inches below my feet. But put that same edge overlooking a cliff, and I can't get myself to go within meters of the cliff. I mean, rationally, I know the situation is no different than when I'm standing on the edge of a sidewalk. But on the edge of a cliff, my insides start churning, and I fight to get a control over my own emotions. Now, you, my listener, might feel no identification with me at all. You know, you don't struggle to cross a bridge in your car, and by the way, I don't either. But you have also no fear of heights or closed-in spaces or whatever else. But perhaps, just perhaps, you have a fear of public speaking, and I, on the other hand, have none. I'm making a point. Uh, We all have something inside of us that's busted. It doesn't work the way it should. And depending on what that weakness is that you struggle with, you know, it might feel like your weakness is absolutely debilitating. You know, today we're going to learn something about God's plan to handle our weaknesses. You know, we've been studying 2 Corinthians, and as we've noted, Paul is in a battle with the false teachers. They've made the claim that Paul is weak and they're strong. He's a bad public speaker. He's unimpressive in person. He's a lot of things. In contrast, they've been saying that they're strong. Go ahead, they taunted Paul. Show us what you got, and we'll show you what we've got, and we know we can beat you. See, they're pushing Paul to do what they've been doing. They want him to boast in the flesh and to boast in his abilities. And furthermore, the rebellious minority in Corinth that are still listening to the false teachers are daring Paul as well. And so Paul does it. It's astonishing. But instead of boasting in his strengths, he begins to boast in his sufferings, times that he's been persecuted or reduced to the point of starvation. And when we come to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, we find that he's not done with his boasting. 
Indeed, let's start reading 2 Corinthians 12, verse 1. I must go on boasting, though there is nothing to be gained by it. I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. See, Paul's indicating that if it's boasting you want, I have now only begun. He states what he knows. There's nothing to be gained by it. See, that's an important line. He wants to say that whereas so many people are enamored by a person's abilities or their resume or even their mystical spiritual experiences and numerous other external matters, that people are genuinely impressed by that, Paul says, that's of no value. And in this next section, Paul has now set the stage. If you want me to boast, well then, fine, he says, I will go to visions and revelations of the Lord. We need to notice here that visions were a part of the Greek and Roman religious experience. There was the very famous, what was been called the Oracle of Delphi, in which a priestess from the Temple of Apollo would, in a frenzied state induced by the vapors of various drugs, she'd enter into a trance, and then she'd tell of the visions that she'd had. And the actual oracles were often vague, and they were left to the various interpretations. And, and all of that sounds very strange to our ears, but it was highly sought after in the ancient Greek world. Now, that was what was happening in the Greek world. Well, how about the Jewish world? You might remember that Jesus was constantly being asked to perform a sign in order to authenticate who he was. And we also know that Jews were very interested in visitations of angels. And some scholars say that there was a Jewish tradition about how to deal with visionary accounts and dangers to avoid and so forth. And all of that to say that there was not only an interest in the Greek world, the Jewish world was also interested in visions. Now, we don't know if the false teachers claimed their own unique visions, but this fascinates me. You know, in our day, there are some sections of the Christian church that are especially fascinated with visions. For instance, if you write a book telling that you've died, went to heaven, and have come back, and that you're now in a position to tell what's on the other side, you're almost certain to get a following. Now, that's also true with all sorts of other visions. In some circles, this kind of an experience is greatly prized. And it may well be that a certain segment of the Corinthian church was highly enthusiastic to hear about the latest visions as well. And so if Paul was going to convince them that he is the apostle that they are to listen to, one can almost hear them saying it, then show your mystical side, that's going to impress. But from Paul's perspective, all that stuff he said is of no value. So let's see what Paul says next. I'm reading in verses 2 to 5. He says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man, I will boast. But on my own behalf, I will not boast except of my weaknesses. So let's stop there, for there are so many questions that need answering. First of all, who's the man? And the answer must be, the man must be Paul himself. Now, why do I say that? Well, first, go back to verse 1, where Paul says, I must boast. I will go on, he says, to visions and revelations about the Lord. And then, that's what he does. 
And then go ahead to verse 7, where Paul says, So to keep me from being conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelation. So what's he doing? He's, he's telling of the visions that he's seen. And so bracketing the account of the man who went into the third heavens is the statement that Paul has indeed had extraordinary visions. And we're left with no other conclusion but that Paul right here is speaking about himself and he's describing his own experience. Well, then, if that's the case, why does he put the matter into the third person? I mean, why doesn't he just say, I went to the third heaven rather than I know a man who went to the third heaven? I mean, why saying it in that strange way? And I think the answer is that Paul doesn't wish to boast about his visions. Yes, they were life transforming for him, but he was not going to make these visions his message. It was a highly personal matter, and he wasn't going to share the details. Now, of course, we have to assume that these visions would have communicated to Paul his life direction, his ministry focus. We have to assume that these visions came from Jesus, and they communicated the gospel message to Paul, the very message that he had been sharing with the Gentiles. These were visions that came from Jesus, but it was the content of the message not the nature of the visions that Paul was interested in sharing. I hope you see the difference. Paul doesn't go around sharing his visions. Rather, he goes around sharing the gospel. That's so important for us to hear. But there are still other questions. What's the third heaven? Well, the answer to that is actually quite simple. The first heaven was the atmosphere directly over our heads. The second heaven is the universe or the cosmos, and the third heaven is the dwelling place of God. Now, says Paul, this vision happened 14 years ago before I wrote 2 Corinthians, and it might be, at least my way of thinking, that it happened while Paul was preparing for his ministry in Arabia. And Paul says, I was in the third heavens, and he calls it paradise. He says he's not completely sure about the nature of his own experience. He doesn't know if he was actually physically there or it was just a vision. It must have been so real that later upon reflection, Paul's not sure of the exact nature of the experience. But, says Paul, look, I do know this, that if I told the details of that experience to some of you, I would get instant credibility. But I refuse. There are some things that God has given that are not for me to communicate, so no boasting here. The central mission of the church is the Great Commission. We are to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that Christ has commanded us. So join Dr. John Newfeld as he walks us through a video series on missions called The Missionary God. The Missionary God is available for viewing at backtothebible.ca or on Back to the Bible Canada's YouTube channel. And we encourage you to pray for opportunities to be messengers of joy, sharing trustworthy Bible teaching that brings real hope in difficult times. To know more or to make a gift to support the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada, Call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. Second Corinthians 12 verse 7 has long been a verse that's fascinated Bible students. It's because verse 7 not only tells us something of Paul's experience, but if we're careful here, it will also tell us what so many 
other Christians are experiencing and why it is they're experiencing it. So let's start by reading the verse. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Now, Paul's already explained the things he saw were things others had not been shown. Notice, he does not say he prepared himself for the experience, nor that it has heightened his spirituality, or or that's made him open to more visions. Rather, he says, I was simply taken into the third heaven, and I heard things I may not utter. So stop. We simply don't know what he saw, and all the speculation in the world won't get us any further in this matter. But we do know the results of what he saw. As an example, let me read Ephesians 3, 8 and 9. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given, to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God, who created all things. So consider what it is that Paul uniquely understood. He understood more about justification by faith than any other human being. He understood more about how in Christ There is neither Jew nor Gentile because of justification by faith. He knew that all that now counts is the grace that's given to us in the cross. And the reason Paul saw that with such clarity must have been because of the vision God had shown him. He was chosen to bring this revelation into the open. Now then, says Paul, To be chosen for such a role means that it's quite possible now to become self-centered and big-headed and narcissistic, inflation of the ego. And God knew that. But God will not tolerate pride in his servants. God is determined to humble his greatest servants. And so God gave Paul a thorn in the flesh. And I know, I know, uh, there have been all manner of theories as to what it was. You know, people often suggest that it was some form of an illness. And Galatians 4, 13 to 14 is often used as a justification for that view. Writing to the Galatian Christians, Paul says, You know that it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. So at least from that verse, we do know that there were times when Paul did struggle with very severe illnesses. Those of you who know something about Martin Luther will know that Luther struggled with bowel problems that were almost debilitating. It was often been the case that people who were greatly used by God have testified to a similar experience. I mean, read the biography of the great missionary C.T. Studd. Realize that his physical pain was so great, he was treating it with morphine. And Studd reasoned that the medication would probably shorten his life but he also believed that if he did not take the medication, his ministry would be over. So he chose a shorter ministry-filled life for the sake of the gospel. You know, the skeptic might say, well, now, if C.T. Studd had faith, God would have certainly healed him in a moment. Yeah, it's true. God could have healed him instantly, even as he could have healed Paul instantly when he was in Galatia and laboring there while extremely ill. So if you will, listen to what Paul writes the Philippian believers while he's in prison. Philippians 2, 25 to 27 says, I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphrodites, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need, 
For he has been longing for all of you and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. So did you notice what Paul didn't say? Look, he didn't say, you know, Epaphroditus was very sick, so I laid my hands on him and I anointed him with oil, and then he just immediately got better. Now, just so that we don't misunderstand what I've just said, I'm quite sure that Paul would have prayed for Epaphrodite's healing. But Paul doesn't say he was healed because he exercised the law of faith. Paul never spoke that way, and neither should we. Rather, Paul says he didn't die for only one reason. I was already in such a distraught state that God knew that the death of this beloved brother was more than I could bear. And out of mercy for me, he didn't call Epaphrodite's home. Now, all that brings me back to the example I began with. Do you remember? It's the example of the woman who is in fear of driving over a completely safe bridge. Look, I don't know if that woman was a believer or not, but I do know that her irrational fear made me reflect on my own weakness. And instead of laughing at how silly she was or how crazy she was, I was reminded of how we're all broken in some way. I've hiked up mountains with my wife and other friends, and if you see me doing that, let me explain what I'm doing. I'm staring at the cliff and not at the view. I don't allow myself to look over the edge. i just freeze if I did that. If you run into me, you're going to see that my eyes are straying no further than my feet, and I'm mumbling to myself. So what would I be saying? Well, I'd be repeating Psalm 23. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. I just keep repeating that. And to put it frankly, my weakness is humiliating to me. Now then, God had determined that it is far better that his servants deal with humiliating weakness and through it to remain humble than to heal them. And through that, they might become arrogant. God knows what's important, and we need to learn that as well. Now then, Paul mentions that he has a thorn in the flesh, and whatever it was, he also mentions it was a messenger of Satan. The evil one was at work to humiliate Paul, and God had decided not to block Satan. Now, let's continue to read verses 8 and 9. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. See, three times Paul is praying in earnest. Oh God, this burden in my flesh is too much for me. If it's an illness, we can almost hear him, can't we? Lord, you know the evil one has sent this. I plead with you to turn now and have mercy on me. Heal me. And if it was something else, his prayer would have been appropriate to the barb that lay in him that he simply couldn't shake. And in each of the three instances, Jesus himself answers Paul, my grace is more than enough for you. I've determined that my great power would reach its perfection through your weakness. Your weakness, therefore, is necessary to display my power. The thorn is going to remain. Does that sound cruel to you? Well, Paul didn't think so. God had appointed him for weakness. If God had determined that the weakness would showcase God's power, even though the weakness would cause considerable suffering, so be it. Let it be known that God's ways are good. Paul then inserts a word. It's the word, therefore. Therefore, on the basis of this truth that God's power is made perfect in weakness, let's come to a conclusion. So what's the conclusion? Paul says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness. Do you see? 
The false teachers were accusing Paul of being weak in a number of areas, and Paul responds, you boys don't get it, do you? Those weaknesses, the ones you despise me for, those very weaknesses are the gifts that God has given me. You despise my weaknesses, but I glory in them. How so? There is an answer to that. Look at how weak I am, says Paul. And yet, look at what God accomplishes through me. Is it not true then that the only way to explain all of that is that it must be God? It can't be me. I am far too weak for that. And isn't that exactly what the false teachers have been saying, that they've said he's a bad speaker. He's got an unimpressive appearance. He does not bear himself like successful people do. Yes, says Paul, I'm weak. And yet, look at what Christ has done through me. Explain that, will you? And all this leads Paul to a conclusion. It's found in verse 10. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And before we get to that final statement, when I'm weak, then I'm strong, would you notice carefully that one very telling phrase, I am, says Paul, content with weaknesses. I'm no longer begging God to remove them. Of course, it's never wrong to pray for healing or the end of our troubles or the end of persecution or the end of things that cause pain. No one wants to live with these things except, says Paul, when God has determined that these things should remain. Weaknesses make us ever more dependent on Jesus. Weaknesses strip us of our pride and leave self-promotion where it deserves to be left. Don't you see, my dear beloved friend, Are you angry with God because of the hardships you've endured? Make peace with God and see what God is about. Be content with your weaknesses. Thanks so much, Sean. You know, it's a day when we are constantly hearing the phrase, be your best self. So what does it mean to be content then with your weaknesses? Yeah, If being your best self actually means uh, using your gifts to the fullest, to the glory of God, well, then we're all for it, right? Uh, However, we recognize uh, that God has deliberately uh, given us weaknesses so that we would rely, first of all, on his power, but that we would also be forced into interaction uh, with one another as well. Uh, because, you know, one of my weaknesses is going to be one of your strengths and uh, vice versa as well. And so God has deliberately placed weaknesses within us to make us dependent on him and his power. So, you know, if uh, being my best self means I am simply solitary self, it's always sin. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again next week as we continue our series, The Price of Victory, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. This month, Dr. Neufeld will continue his video series, The Missionary God, which airs weekly on Back to the Bible Canada's YouTube channel. We believe these messages are so important for believers that we want to send you the expanded message series on CD for free. We'll explore questions like, why is it that God can allow so much suffering in the world? And why has God commanded us to make disciples of all nations? There are so many challenging questions, and though they may make us feel uncomfortable at times, they require Bible-focused responses. So join us this month on air, online, via podcast, or listen on the Back to the Bible Canada mobile app. 
Don't forget to ask for your free CD copy of this important series by calling us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.